what personal experience do you have with the paranormal? Well, that's a long answer. It's a lot. I am what you would call an experiencer of high strangeness. I'll probably be dealing with some of these things um, on my Wisdom app show. I don't know what you would call it, but here, I'll be flushing some of them out, I'm sure. But it's interesting because in the 80s and 90s, it used to be that you would, if you saw a ghost or you had a UFO experience or something like that, and you had a lifetime of experiences, you would only talk about the one thing because even though it's incredible to society at large, you still want to try to sound credible, so you would just tell the part you thought people would believe. But from my personal experience and from interviewing tons of people over the years who are also experiencers, it's clear that we lead lifetimes of uh, highly strange, you know, anomalous experiences that run the gamut of paranormal and so-called alien phenomena. So it's all interconnecting in some way, and I'm sure I'll be talking about it on the show. Thanks for the question. Aloha, wisdom people. People of the wisdom. Wise askers. It's Jeremy Vanny. And um, I'm already going to start by making a lot of background noise while no one's here so that I can uh, close the door because it's very windy out. And I didn't realize how loud that was. So no one wants to just hear static. Um, I got to thinking after doing the last episode or whatever this is on Kundalini, uh, I think it was in there that I'd just made an offhand remark about how uh, different uh, this, the so-called straightforward spirituality stuff has been in my life as opposed to alien abduction. Um, so I thought I would do a little episode here on the wisdom of alien abduction, which if you are scoffing at that notion, or if you're like, yes, aliens, wait for it. <laughs> you're all in for a surprise. Um, so, I, and I, I won't go over a whole lot of my experiences. I don't have, I have a lifetime full of high strangeness experiences. Some of them are clearly, you know, related to the alien abduction phenomenon. And then the others, you know, you used to say they wouldn't be, but then it, it, there comes a point where you got to ask, like, how can a whole host of paranormal stuff be happening to one person and it's not interconnected? Um, and this question, this very basic question, um, actually uh, gets to the heart of the wisdom of these phenomena in our lives, if you've ever had these types of phenomena. Um, so I won't get into like all the grainy details and stuff, um, but I may talk about at least one uh, big set piece, <laughs> as it were, that um, I, I'm completely sick of talking about. I mean, honestly, I'm, I, I used to write for UFO Magazine. I had, um, you know, my own column there. It was sort of a d opinion column. I don't know, essays, whatever I wanted. So I talked about a lot of my stuff there. I've written books on myself and I even, hell, I even made a documentary about me. So the narcissism is off the, the scale here, folks. <laughs> but I, I realize also it can be instructive to dissect these experiences in ways that you might not be used to. Um, so, but let's, let's start here. The wisdom of alien abduction as a whole is, it, again, it's not straightforward like, like you, you know, when the brain understands that the self must be shut off for truth to flower within the body and become 
the sort of self-identity, uh, which I've talked about. If you haven't heard, I've talked about this on pretty much every other episode of this. Um, so you can just go down my talks and listen to any of them um, and get a, a taste of what I'm talking about there. But that's pretty straightforward. That's like in the absence of self, truth is the case of the body. Um, Kundalini is an expression of this, which, you know, so-called rises, but uh, really maneuvers the body and does healthy things and cleans you out and all that in an intelligent way because it is intelligence. Um, and so alien abduction doesn't do that. Alien abduction uh, gives you a bunch of sort of dangling carrots pulls you down various rabbit holes if you allow yourself to be. And the wisdom comes in seeing that you are allowing yourself to be. And the wisdom comes in seeing that all of that alien stuff is a facade. And then you can get into, okay, what is that facade? And for the longest time, um, you know, if I, I guess I embraced sort of the, mostly the trickster theory by George Hansen. This, um, He's not a ufologist, but he's a paranormal psi researcher um, who wrote a book called The Trickster and the Paranormal. And he lumps it all in there from spirituality to UFOs to ghosts. All of it is essentially trickster. And he says, you know, you can't say really what the trickster is. You know, if you're going to be scientific about it, you can't say that there is this intelligence called the trickster. But you can note patterns that happen to mirror uh trickster phenomena throughout the ages in pretty much every culture. And uh, so the alien abduction phenomenon is no different in that sense. And, you know, this was something that my, my former broadcast partner and I, Jeff Ritzman would explore in Paratopia once we heard it from George um, by asking guests, by thinking about our own lives. And so the, the, essential sort of gist is that uh, that paranormal phenomena tend to happen to people in liminal states and in transitional times um, and in transitional places. Like apparently the most um, sort of haunting phenomena takes place in the bathroom. Did you know that? <laughs> like takes place around water takes place. And what is more like liminal and transitional than going to the bathroom, right? In your house. Uh, that's, that's what that room is. Um, and it also, he would say tends to happen to marginal people. So this is why people you wouldn't believe about anything a day in their life are the ones claiming to have these outrageous experiences. Uh, the stereotype of, at least in America, the Southern hick, who's like, I saw a ghost, I saw Bigfoot. And you're like, yeah, right. Yokel. Well, you know, odds are they saw a ghost or saw Bigfoot, whatever that is, whatever that represents. But it's as if there is an intelligence that hides in the disbelief we would give to a certain type of witness. Uh, so it's all of this obfuscation and hiding and coming out during liminal times, during times of transition. Like if you're going through a divorce, if you're switching jobs, if you're getting married, um, I mean, famously, uh, arch debunker skeptic, you know, what does he run? Scientific American, I think. Uh, Michael Shermer, you may know that name. 
I mean, he had uh, an experience when he got married. I think it was, I may be getting this wrong, but I don't think so, that his wife's uh, deceased father had a radio that was like an old tiny battery operated radio that was long dead sitting in a desk. And I think it might, might've been on their marriage day or the day before it suddenly turned on. And I think went to a song that was like specific to them played a song that was, you know, that they would recognize as something that that was from him. And Michael Shermer admitted this to his own skeptical people of like, I don't know what to make of this, but interesting. And he got crapped on, uh, because by the very audience that he raised to believe that everything is bah humbug. Uh, so that's, (laughs) you reap what you sow there, Michael. But you know, that there's an example. I mean, even, even the, the man who has painted himself as the trustworthy source, right? The debunker, the scientific type, the guy who knows logic and rationality, uh, you know, is the pinnacle of human thought and that materialism and um, humanism are, you know, the, the ideals of what we should be trying to achieve. You know, even that, that dude, uh, you know, was marginal and unbelieved by his own audience because um, to speak that in that being that guy is taboo. So all of that's pretty fun and interesting. And I'm, you know, as George Hansen likes to remind me, I too am a marginal character. Why would you believe me? I mean, look at, (laughs) I think he said on our podcast once, did you see his movie? And it's, it's like, yeah, I guess if you ever saw, and you probably won't see my documentary, but if you ever did, You'd be like, yeah, why would I trust that guy? Um, and yet, there it is. It's happening. Um, but what is the it, and where does it come from? And it, it seems one of the things that we also found is that whatever this phenomenon is, whatever this intelligence is, puts out dangling carrots in early childhood for people. And if you um, yank on them, <laughs> you you cause a feedback loop, and you start interacting with it. It's like you're pulling this intelligence into our world through your own mind space. Pretty trippy. And for me, when I was about two years old, I saw a parade uh, we, uh, through, I, I have like a sort of a playroom balcony area on the second floor of an apartment building in our apartment. And I watched this parade come around the corner of the street. There were elephants and giraffes and all kinds of stuff. There was a marching band. And they were making a loud noise, you know, marching band and all. And the conductor looked up at me and almost with a wink or a twinkle in his eye, he was very, um, very uh, Dr. Seuss-esque, giant teeth, I seem to remember on him, like rabbit teeth, funny enough, which I hadn't thought about till I just said it just now. But, huh, Alice in Wonderland much? Okay. So I ran into the kitchen to get my mom and sister, who were home at the time, and, you know, grabbed them by the hand, like, you gotta, you know, you gotta see, you gotta see. And, um... They came in and there was nothing. There was no band. There was no parade. And this was always just a cute story because I, I have a great long-term memory, but I, I have a crappy short, short-term short memory. But I've always had a good long-term memory. And so I remembered that uh, throughout life. And I would tell it sometimes just as kind of a, hey, this is a funny thing that happened. But then later in life, when I had more serious UFO-related and then uh, abduction-y type stuff happen, I saw it as part of a larger pattern. And I think had I 
looked at that quick parade episode as just a cute kid thing that didn't really affect me and just brush it off or as a dream or hallucination or, you know, however my mom, you know, probably treated is like, Oh, that's just a little imaginative two-year-old kid, right? Three-year-old, whatever it was, two or three. Um, but so if, if I just let it go, would I have had a lifetime of experiences? It's arguable that I would not. Um, unless they came back later and were like, okay, we're going to try this again. <laughs> Take it from the top people. Um, so there's that. Uh, and uh, part of the, the wisdom of seeing through the facade is seeing through the cottage industry that surrounds it too. Um, because a lot of what's out there, probably what most of you know as alien abduction comes from, um, well, movies and TV and, and, uh, coast to coast AM from back in the day. Um, and these researchers who did hypnosis, um, basically people who claim to be with, you know, military whistleblowers who were lying, uh, back in the eighties and early nineties. And then, um, from hypnotically retrieved memories of alleged alien abductees. And, in ufology, they would allow for speculation of what those things were in terms of, oh, is it aliens? Or like if you're a mythologist, you might see it as lar- part of a larger pattern of um, fairy tales because a lot of the material in the hypnotically retrieved stuff smacks of fairy tales, you know, uh, the being stolen in the night, the, the offer to come away with them, and but you can't be returned. Um, the pregnancies, the missing pregnancies, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, and early on, like the early, probably the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were those sightings that involved, or, you know, sort of contactee type things, not the ones by people who claim to be from like Venus or travel of Venus, not those contactees, but like the ones that you might think might be real of like seeing something on the side of the road that then they would have interpreted as like a derrick or something um, and a being who would offer them food. And this offering of food is also fae folklore, fairy folklore. So there's that, there's that sort of like, you can talk about it in terms of that. You can talk about it in terms of, well, are they aliens from another planet or interdimensional? Um, George Hansen's trickster theory for the longest time was not talked about. uh, But Jeff and I sort of, made it <laughs> talked about. We certainly, especially Jeff hammered it home so many times that I think uh, it broke through via podcasting into the subculture at large, not just from us, but I think, I think you could probably say a lot of it was from us. Um, in any event, these, these trickstery patterns do exist. And even those fairy folklore patterns in, exist in hypnosis stuff. And you can talk about all of that and you can talk about interdimensional. Um, but what you can't do as it turns out is call attention to the fact that hypnosis is the absolute wrong tool to use for memory retrieval. And if you're listening to this in the UK or pretty much anywhere else in the world, you probably know this already, but in the U S um, it's still taboo to talk about in UFO world. Um, because so much of the industry, you know, is that all of the storytelling comes from hypnotically retrieved memories. You know, you have to have 
a white male, usually sometimes female researcher, you know, writing books about experiencers sitting on a stage next to the experiencer who back in the day would be like hiding their name or their voice. And they'd be in shadow behind a scrim, you know, talking about all this damaging stuff that's happened to them. And you'd have this, this book writer who would be front and center, this amateur hypnotist who would uh, narrate and explain what this all means would interpret it for you. But what they're not telling you is that they're actually co-creating it with the experiencer through hypnosis. And there may be a point in time where they didn't know that because they hadn't kept up with the scholarship, didn't care to, didn't know about it. Um, but at this point they know, and yet they persist, uh, not without quite a bit of pushback, um, which is great, but it's still a mainstay of ufology is like hypnotically retrieved stories and they're cookie cutter stories, meaning that they are edited and that's by design too. the, Back in the day, the two biggest proponents of hypnosis were Bud Hawkins and David Jacobs, and then arguably John Mack from Harvard University a little bit later. Um, but I had Bud Hawkins on one of my old podcasts, uh, my first podcast, Culture of Contact, and he admitted that he creates outlier data. Uh, this is the cookie cutting of um, any abduction testimony from his clientele uh, that didn't ring true to him or that got in the way. So any of the high strangeness stuff, if it got too strange, he didn't include it in books. He didn't want to believe it. Um, he didn't know what to do with it. So essentially what you do is you end up forming this narrative that is a science fiction narrative that is easy to understand and easy to mass market essentially, which is alien doctors are here doing alien doctor things and they're either, malevolent creating hybrids of us and them uh, with no care or concern to the human, um, you know, in some sort of bid to take over or whatever, or, you know, that's at the worst. And, and at the best, they're uh, indifferent to us. They're just these doctors doing experiments and they're indifferent to us. And Again, this is hypnotically retrieved stuff. The, uh, you know, birth, the, the stolen, uh, embryos and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, when you interview experiencers, as I have for so many years, uh, you don't get those stories if they haven't had hypnosis. Uh, there's a clue here, folks. <laughs> and, um, you know, his best buddy, David Jacobs, again, Jeff Ritzman and I, along with Emma Woods and Carol Rainey, and then later Jack Brewer, um, all dismantled his creepy, disgusting work, if you want to call it work, with subjects. Uh, now, he was the one who was promoting heavily hybrid aliens uh, here to take over and all of that. And only he and Bud Hopkins knew the real truth, you know. But Emma Woods was a whistleblower former subject of his whom he was writing a book about or he was making her the centerpiece of his whatever his latest book was back in 2010 or 2011. And she wanted out because she woke up from her stupor and realized, wait, this is garbage. This is Dungeons and Dragons role-playing and this isn't real. This doesn't. Now she's had real experiences, but what came out of hypnosis didn't reflect that. It reflected what David Jacobs 
implanted in her and it got really gross and creepy. So let's just leave it at that and say, um, the reason that we know that this is all true is because she had tape recordings of her hypnosis sessions and also of their, you know, when she's the breakup, you know, when she said, I want out, I don't want you to write a book about me. I will do it in a way that makes you look good. I'll make a public statement that everything's okay. I'm just leaving. And he would have none of that. You know, the narcissistic rantings coming out of him during that were phenomenal. Um, anyway, so that was sort of the at least temporary collapse for anyone who's paying attention of hypnotically retrieved material in ufology. Um, but unfortunately, in UFO world, you can, you can be an outright fraud. And within a couple of weeks, everyone's memory just sort of goes hazy on the whole issue. They have amnesia and suddenly you're famous again. It's like you keep seeing these people pop up on like ancient aliens and stuff. And it's like, oh, oh, that guy. <laughs> uh, in fact, there's a guy now who just released a book who's someone on a message board was uh, lying, was caught lying, going after Carol Rainey and threatening to expose Emma Woods' real identity because Emma Woods at the time was a pseudonym, although she has now legally changed her name to Emma Woods. Uh, but at the time it was a pseudonym and he was going to out her. He was threatening all of this. And then he got caught in a lie. Uh, and by Carol Rainey and Carol Rainey essentially said to him, I'm going to out your identity if you don't go away. And so he slunk away and turns out he just released a book now where she's touting as like logical and rational. And of course it involves his former buddies and heroes, uh, you know, Jacobs and Hopkins, their work, their style of stuff. So these people just stick around these liars and scoundrels and they put on a suit and tie and they present to you a vision. And, uh, and when you challenge that vision, again, you can, you can expand the cottage industry with other theories, but you can't collapse it by taking out this domino, which would essentially, you know, start the domino effect of, oh, wait, all this other research based on this premise of this hypnotically retrieved material. Wait a minute. All of that has to go too. Um, so what, again, this gets to like, what is the wisdom, if there is any, of, of alien abductions? If, if we don't really even know that they're aliens, we don't really know that they're abducting people. <laughs> well, it's the wisdom of calling everything into question, isn't it? The irony is we keep building an answer around it, whether it's fairy folklore or whether it's aliens or whatever it is. We build an answer around it instead of seeing the beauty of the elusiveness of its nature or what this intelligence is presenting. Um, it, because even the most sort of basic aspects of an experience don't really make sense. They do and they don't at the same time. So it's like, you know, there's a logical core uh, that is an anchor here, but then there's this transcendental part that transcends and includes that to which then the logic points to say that's real, but I don't know what real is because it transcends me. I don't know what it is. Um, and this is where we get stuck because we keep wanting to make a logical st structured story out of it. We want like the military to tell us what they know and all this sort of stuff. And it's like the phenomena itself is self negating. It's, it's playing into whatever front 
or facade you believe it is, while at the same time, if you know how to look, calling into question its own nature. And I'll, I'll give you two strong examples of my own. Uh, the first is, well, I guess that quick parade was one, but you know, I'll give you two more. The first one was the one that woke me up to the fact that this may be in my life at all. Uh, here's a story I'm sick of telling, but it'll be new to you. <laughs> so that makes me want to tell it. Which is, uh, in eighth grade, driving to Vermont from Massachusetts with my mother and sister, my mom driving, my sister in the passenger seat, and me in the back, uh, on my mom, on the, you know, the, the driver's side. And it's the typical, like, desolate road. Very near to, if not exactly, the highway that Betty and Barney Hill famously were abducted on back in the back in the day in New Hampshire in the what sixties. Um, so, you know, there's that. And my mom saw this thing first. Uh, we're going to our grandparents' place. It's the middle of the night, of course. It's desolate, of course. And she sees up in the sky uh, something. And she's like, wow, look at that, huh? You know, and my sister is reading a book and not interested. So it takes her a while to even care. But I am right there. I'm looking at it and like, wow, what is that? And what we both saw was a circular or oval um, shaped object or what appeared to be an object that had uh, porthole windows running down the center. It had red and blue blinking lights. The top half was spinning one way. The bottom half was spinning the other. Had a flat bottom to it. Um, had a little bit of a domey thing on top or a red light on top. And it was self-luminescent green. The entire object was like this self-luminescent green. And it was just sitting up in the sky, tilted on its axis, rotating like that, silently as far as I could tell. I rolled down my window to make sure, well, to listen, but also to make sure it wasn't just like some weird reflective thing going on. Uh, and I didn't think UFO, I didn't think aliens or anything like that. The first thing I thought was it looks like a giant toy or it looks like, um, like some sort of Las Vegas billboard type thing, uh, because it looked fake. I mean, if I took a picture of this, you would have said it was fake. (laughs) It's like so perfect, so perfectly out of the Jetsons or out of a movie or something. It's like, it practically screams, look at me, I'm an alien. Right. And so we're ogling over this and my sister at one point did try to look, but couldn't see it. And I don't know if she couldn't see it because of the angle of the roof where she was like trying to look over my mom to see it out her side window. Um, or if as the legend goes in UFO literature, she wasn't meant to see it. I mean, whatever the case, she went back to her book and didn't look for it too hard. Uh, so we got to our grandparents' place. Now my mom remembers going, you know, like speeding out of there and that, well, the way she says it, um, it, it was that the, the object was, was there and gone, uh, pretty quickly, but also she wasn't sticking around to find out. Like she's seen too many movies to like, you know, want to, want to stick around and find out what happens next. But I remember watching it out the back window as she went around a corner. So she wasn't in fact speeding. But I think she went around a corner and then couldn't see it anymore. And I was still watching it for a little bit. Anyway, we get to our grandparents' place and we think, you know, they're staunch conservatives and all of that. And we think that they're going to laugh at us and ah, ha ha. 
And it's the opposite. It's, oh, uh, they have time life mysteries of the unexplained sitting on the coffee table. And our uncle, who lived with them, uh, had seen a UFO, had a U- his own UFO encounter, and, and now he's been studying this ever since. So that synchronicity to my little itty-bitty eighth-grade mind actually woke me up into this sense of being watched, puppeteered, that, you know, life was, was just that, was just like a, a puppeteer, being puppeteered by some intelligence watching us. It had that effect on me, whether it's true or not, that was the effect. And I hadn't thought about this until I wrote my first book, I Know Why the Aliens Don't Land, and was doing like radio interviews. And I did a radio interview uh, in Vermont uh, for a local radio station, and it was a call-in show. And this caller said they remembered seeing the exact same thing I had described at, you know, probably around the exact same time. And the thing that struck them was when they saw it, this green object was was flying slowly above the treetop level and flew over them. And the thing that struck them was the fact that it was so bright green. It wasn't camouflaged in any way. It was as if it wanted to be seen. And yet, where were all the reports? Why wasn't it seen? Huh. This gets to something. I hadn't thought about that, but that's so true. Like, why, what is this about essentially a, a flashing neon sign saying, notice me, notice me, notice me. And only a handful of people notice it. Um, can that be a coincidence? I don't think so. This is a pattern we see over and over again. Whether, you know, there is a phenomenon that is directional, which means that if you were, uh, standing to the left or the right of our point of view, would you have seen it or no? <laughs> Uh, because I certainly, with Jeff Ritzman, had that experience of just that, of seeing something in the sky at a crowded bus station and taking pictures of it and all that, and nobody else seemed to be able to see it. And at one point, Jeff couldn't see it, and I literally moved him right in front of me because I was seeing it. And he's like, where is it? What are you talking about? And this was also a green – this was just a light. It wasn't like a fully defined object. It was a green light, and I moved him in front of me, and then he saw it. And there was nothing obstructing our view. Um, so I've had that experience too. And I know that that is the case, but all of this gets to, um, this ain't aliens, right? Like this is the beginning of, this is something deeper. This is something that wants to connect with us or needs to connect with us. That does, there is something about it that needs us to perceive it to be here, but it doesn't seem to really care what we think it is just so long as we're in connection with it. And because we're a, you know, a society that denies all this stuff and makes it taboo and puts it in the category of like horror sci-fi. Um, we tend to make that a horror movie, right? We tend to think the worst. Um, Oh, is this demonic? Oh, is this evil aliens? And you know, it doesn't care if we think that either. (laughs) Like That's what I find interesting. It's just, are you, it, it's almost like it's really up to you. Are you going to go with the, the main storyline of what society is telling you it is, or even what your own intuition is, your own fears based on your own knowledge, which again, to my mind was sci-fi and horror. Like that's the bait, you know, in whatever a priest might say, like, this is what you would bounce such an experience off of. Um, because there is no, what else is there to think about it? Um, without pondering it on your own. 
So are you going to ponder it on your own or are you going to go with, with what, you know, your fears are based on what society has told you, which is actually based on nothing. Um, and uh, just as a sidebar, there was always, there was this case, I think it was out of Canada that always intrigued my, my partner, Jeff and, and me too, to an extent called the, the Dorothy Isaac case, which was fascinating because she took a kajillion photos of something of what looked to be like another world in, you know, sort of like a window opening up to another world in the sky. And she had these positive interactions with these beings, right? Which she thought were, I think she thought they were aliens and she had had these positive interactions with them until she told her priest about it one day. And then he was like, Oh my God, that's Satan. That's the, you know, that's devil. That's demonic. Don't trust it. And when he told her that the experiences themselves took on that shape of shadowy, evil, dark, demonic. And she didn't like it. She didn't like how it felt. So she decided, I'm not going to believe that. And then that they went right back to being uh, good. <laughs> so there, it's like silly putty. It's like a, an intelligence. It's like, it's a formless awareness that can for a limited time uh, manifest in a form. And it's like silly putty here. Um, it's sort of whatever your expectation is, that's kind of what you're going to get. And the more you give, the more you get, as Jeff said, that creating that feedback loop, the more you pay attention to it, uh, the more it is here. And I've heard it said, like, you know, if you pray to, if you don't want it in your life and you pray, you can pray to Jesus or whoever, and it will go away. And that's probably true. You can also not do that and it will go away. You can just not pay attention to it. Getting back to George Hansen's trickster theory. Um, the thing that sort of ends paranormal activity for people is routine. So if you live a routine life, if you live a so-called dull routine life, you're not likely to have a whole lot of paranormal experiences. So if you decide to ignore it and block it out and like do routine things, uh, this stuff will probably go away. Uh, it, or at least it will be kept at the periphery. Um, so you don't even need to necessarily believe in anything. Just simply ignore it and it will go away. <laughs> I mean, pretty crazy, right? Um, so that's, that's one experience. I want to give you one more that really gets to the heart of the trickstery nature of this, which is the most blatant experience I had on the alien abduction side. Um, because I'd had a bunch of experiences that, if I were a skeptic, I would probably, I would try to chuck up to other things. Oh, that's a dream. Oh, that's, I don't know what, you know, hallucination. I don't know what, but something else, some misinterpretation of normal things. Um, but one fine day, uh, I had been a virgin forever. Um, and, uh, into adulthood because, and part of the reason was because of this stuff. I didn't want to invite this stuff in anyone else's life because I didn't know if it was positive or negative or neither or what, but I had read enough of the literature to scare myself into believing that, uh, you could pass it on to people. Right. So, um, I was weary of doing that to someone, uh, but, uh, shortly after nine 11, like, a month after <laughs> apparently like statistically everyone was having sex after the nine 11 attacks and I was no different. So I, uh, had a short lived girlfriend at the time who came to visit me. Uh, and we were, she was going to take my virginity. Um, and 
again, I'd always associated sex with uh, this fear of like alien aliens, you know, like I, it's just this association I had of, of again, passing this on or whatever. So, you know, night one of being together, nothing happened. And I breathed a sigh of relief and I was like, Oh, thank God. Nothing happened. I guess I'm free of this curse. I was wrong all this time. Night two, uh, they showed up night two. There was a bright white light outside my window. I was living in Queens in New York at the time on a mattress on the floor because I was broke in an apartment with other, uh, dudes <laughs> who had their own bedrooms. And, uh, so the gal was lying, uh, closest to the window on my, uh, left. And, uh, this bright light was coming in through the window. And so I sort of crawled over her or half crawled over her and, you know, peeled back the shade to see what is this. And it was like this foggy, diffuse white light. And I couldn't quite make out where it was coming from. I looked down at her. She's asleep. It's not bugging her. So, okay. What do I care? I uh, decide to ignore it. And I roll, I roll over to my right. And there are three beings standing over me, three um, short gray to the blue hue uh, beings in brown or beige tunics. Um, and my reaction to them is abject horror. Like I scream at the top of my lungs, but nothing comes out of my mouth. Uh, but they're emoting at me almost a childlike naivete, like come with us. They don't say anything. There's no psychic, whatever. It's just this feeling I get from them as I'm screaming in terror, you know, with nothing coming out. And the next thing I know, and it's literally the next thing I know, there's no transition here. I am standing uh, in a room in my underwear as I went to bed. Everything is through my eyes as if I am awake. <laughs> and I'm not screaming in terror anymore, so some sort of sedation must have taken place. But I'm standing there, and there's a row of um, tables with humans naked on them, presumably asleep or unconscious. And the one closest to me is a blonde woman, maybe in her early 50s. And the three beings are standing around this woman and gesturing with their hands, um, like, see, this is what we do for a living kind of gesture. And again, it's that like naivete thing going on. And I, I actually, uh, I think to myself, why the hell, why am I here seeing this? And a female voice answers in my head psychically, because you've always wanted to remember an abduction. We have a long conversation. I don't remember what it is. I did remember it the next morning. This is all I remember. And then I wake up the next day. Um, but I remember remembering it, <laughs> if that makes sense. I remembered it the next day, but I let it go. And at this point, I had written a book on my experiences. Uh, naturally, this experience happened after I wrote the book. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I was writing for UFO Magazine. And yet I still didn't want this to be real. Like when it happens to you, it shatters even the things you think about it. So, I mean, I was left with abject animal terror, physical bodily terror, and I blocked it out. I didn't want this to be real. Uh, the girl didn't wake up, so could it have been, you know, but I knew it was real. Everything about me was telling me it was real. Now, I want to say just as an addendum here. Once, maybe twice, I had a waking hallucination. So I know what that's like. And the waking hallucination was my mom coming in my bedroom to tuck me 
in before she went off to work and it didn't happen. And as it was happening, as I was hallucinating this, this was back in high school or maybe college when I was home from college break or something. Um, as it was happening, I knew it wasn't real. And everything in me was saying, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. And it's the opposite with an abduction. Everything in you, as you're consciously saying, this can't be real. This can't be real. Everything in you is going, this is real. This is real. This is real. Nevertheless, my ability to block out my own <laughs> better self is, is great. So, so I did. And I let it go. I, I have no idea what that conversation was. But a year later, um, cut to a year later, the gal and I had broken up pretty much before she even left. <laughs> That's its own story. And you can read all about that in my book, Aliens, The First and Final Disclosure. <laughs> so there, there's, a, there's a little plug for my, my latest book. Um, but I cut to a year later, and we had a subletting roommate. So this temporary roommate filling in for another roommate who I believe was like doing a cruise ship tour. He was like an actor and a singer and he would be an entertainer on these crystal line cruise ship tours. So I think that's why we had a subletting roommate filling in for him. And I hadn't met him, but I was in the kitchen in the morning, early morning, uh, sitting in a chair, talking to him. And as I was talking, all of a sudden my nose bled down the left nostril, started bleeding out. And when my nose started bleeding, it triggered a flashback to that, to the night before. Uh, and so what happened the night before was this Kundalini energy, um, decided to come active. Sometimes it wants to come active on its own and I allow it to, and just to see what it's going to do and all that. This night, it did something completely pedestrian, which it doesn't do. Normally it does like exercises or, you know, yoga looking things or, you know, something mystical, <laughs> arguably, or magical or something. But this was like, it was literally like, uh, just pinching the bridge of my nose as if cauterizing my nose, uh, for what happened at around 6 a.m. Somewhere around in there, I think. Maybe not 6 a.m. I don't know, but somewhere in the early morning. Um, I was awoken by a white light, the same quality of bright white light that woke me up a year earlier. So at this point, I'm in a different bedroom and I'm in a real bed. I have graduated as the roommates have shifted around. So the window that I thought it was out was to my front left. And I'm looking out the window and there's nothing. It's black out there. So I roll over and where my wall should be, my wall with all of these posters and stuff on it, uh, because I'm a man child who still had posters, um, where my wall should be is this diffuse white light. Like you would say portal or vortex or something. And looking at it caused my nose to bleed. And I believe it bled. I mean, it bled down my throat. And um, I believe that the reason it didn't bleed out all over the place is because this Kundalini energy knew ahead of time that this was going to happen something and cauterized my nose so that it wouldn't bleed out. But the fact that it bled the next morning triggered this flashback to this all having happened. Um, and then I couldn't ignore the first event from a year prior with the girl because it was that same quality of light that I was seeing here was the light from that other thing. So it was a callback. It was like, you know, just a callback to that 
situation. And it's at this point where, like, the average abductee would be like, I need to get hypnosis and find out what happened. I must have had missing time. And, again, I must stress that hypnosis will not give you – it will fill in the blanks with um, perhaps memory, but definitely also imagination. And you will not be able to know the difference between the two. That's the power of hypnosis. You, I mean, that's why they use it for post-traumatic stress disorder, because you recreate your emotional reactions to memories that you've actually had through hypnosis so that you feel better about being in war, for instance, or you concentrate on the good that you did for your fellow uh, warriors, <laughs> for your army men, as opposed to the bloodshed and the things that are terrorizing you. I mean, this is so you take that tool and you try to just retrieve missing time of something fantastical, I mean, you're going to pull out whatever the hypnotist put into you, whatever your expectation is, all of that, all of that you've seen in life about this stuff already, you are front-loaded with a story. But I also think that it's actually uh, the missing time is fine. You know, what if there is missing time, I don't even know that there really is. I, it's fine just knowing what you know and seeing the callbacky nature, at least of this for me, is enough. And it's enough to say that there aren't aliens. And the reason that there aren't aliens is because there is no alien race spending their tax dollars, waiting, biding their time for this guy, this one person in Queens, New York, to lose his virginity so that they can come in the day after and go booga to booga to boo. What a practical joke. You thought we were going to show up the day you lost your virginity. We showed up the day after once you breathed a sigh of relief and thought you were over us. That's when we showed up. No, I'm sorry. You don't put technology into that. You don't put your mind power into that. You don't travel to another planet to do that. Like that makes absolutely no literal sense. It has the flavor of making sense if you don't think about that aspect of it, right? Like if I just tell you about the abduction, and I edit out the part about having expected them to show up and they didn't, and then the next day they did. Well, that's more in line with like a trickstery sort of bump bump, you know, uh, punchline. Um, I will say at this point, I don't necessarily like. I I understand that the the trickster elements are there. Like that's undeniably true. But I think the sort of theory I'm playing with now for various reasons is that these are interdimensional beings, but that they are interconnecting with us. So they're not just like beings that live divorced from us, you know, across an invisible wall, but that literally we know that at least there are nine dimensions. You know, we understand like three of them and then the rest are invisible to us. Well, who lives in the other configurations or the configurations which are also us. So they're not divorced from us just because they're invisible to us. They also comprise us. We just can't acknowledge that part uh, in any way other than theoretically. But if there are beings who can, then they know us to be aspects of themselves. They know us essentially to be their own unconscious baggage. And so waking us up to our fullness, our wholeness, our own interdimensional nature is in that sense waking themselves up. It's one waking oneself up. Does that make sense? That's that's what I'm working on now as a theory. That doesn't mean that it's true. 
Um, but, uh, I have my own good reasons and I'll flush them out. Probably not here, but on an episode of dreamland, the other, other, other podcast I do. Um, I do that one once a month. Whitley Strieber hosts it three times a month. And now I host it once a month. So I'm going to do a solo episode at some point, uh, to talk about that. Um, all right. I guess I want to just leave it there just to say that like, it's interesting that this stuff seems to be loosely tied with, uh, you know, there are, there are these threads of like, Oh, Kundalini, uh, and, and this alien abduction stuff. And there are ties to the big, I am, uh, enlightenment experience, whatever you want to call it, where I was nothingness and everything is exploding from that nothingness and, Blah, blah, blah. If you recall from that, there were people in the room preceding that, the feeling of people in the room. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that I want to go into all of what I think is going on there, but I do think that in, you know, these are all, uh, an intelligence that is, that both is and is not us. And, uh, and it doesn't care what we think it is <laughs> so long as we wake up because as we are now, as the, the, the people who ponder this consciously, if we're not our whole selves, if we're not there yet, then we're not in that sense equals, if that makes sense. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter what we think they are. It matters that we wake up, then we'll know, right? Like once we're where we need to be, it'll be apparent what's going on. Um, and all of the not helping with our confusion is on purpose because the state of questioning, the state of not having an answer is what I've been talking about with the spirituality stuff all along too, right? It's this state of complete openness where you as the seeker aren't getting what you're seeking. You're, and, and so you're not being self fortified with an answer. And in that moment, you know, you're not there. Right. And so they could have a sit down chat about all this as I've had sit down chats with you about all of this, but just as I've had sit down chats with you about all of this, it won't help. It doesn't matter if, uh, you know, a God or a demon or an alien or a human or a chair or a table or a molecule or a, or a bumblebee to have this conversation with you. Nothing's going to actually wake you up out of you. The brain projecting you has to get that. So but it needs to be indicated for you to even know that that's a thing, right? Like we still have to have the conversation to know that it's a thing, but then the conversation gets in the way. And if they were to like literally have a sit down chat with us, that would be a problem as opposed to all of this sort of shaman uh, um, you know, dark of night sort of clandestine uh, LARP mystery that they present, um, which again, if you don't get caught up in it, then you've made the smart choice to like step back and look at the whole tapestry and go, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> Cause things aren't what they seem. And it seems as though the, the deep mystery thing should be aliens. It seems as though the thing that separ- separates me from the sheeple out there, man, is that I know aliens are real and they don't believe it. They all laugh, you know, like that seems like that should be the deep posture to take, but it's not, that's actually more of the facade. And that's the wisdom being presented in alien abductions is that we're literally 
not talking about aliens, and we're literally not talking about abduction. <laughs> and yet, here we are talking about alien abduction. What does that mean? Well, the meaning should at least be to throw you into a state of question, which is where we should have been all along. Uh, all right. That's, that's my, uh, that's my babble. Um, I've seen that someone has tried to be a guest here a couple of times. If, if you want to chat for a minute, I'm, I'm open to that. Um, come on in. Otherwise I will, uh, I'll, I will take off, but, uh, does anyone want to step up and say hi or have anything to add to that or take away from that? I mean, maybe you've had these experiences and everything I'm talking to you sounds like, you know, <laughs> it's possible. Um, uh, and also, I guess just in the, maybe I'll just throw this out there in the larger context of like, not just alien abduction, but all paranormal phenomena is related, whether it's um, crypto, whatever, you know, like a Bigfoot type thing. Um, as much as the Bigfoot researchers want to make this a logical, like a creature that just hasn't been discovered. Um, Again, there are elements of that that present that way, and then there are not. And that's that's the problem. I, there was a documentary, I can't remember what it was, I just saw it recently, on um, maybe it was called Hunting Bigfoot or something like that. But it was not about Bigfoot, it was about this sub-subculture of men uh, who um, claim to have seen Bigfoot, or think they have at least, maybe they actually have, and then they like leave their jobs and their families and they just go crazy sort of, they go live in the woods and they've got, they, they just search for it. Like, but they're not actually equipped to do that because they're not outdoorsmen necessarily. They're, they don't, you know, it'll be like, you know, if you don't even know how to work a compass and you throw yourself into the woods and a mountain. Uh, and so they just sort of go crazy with themselves on this, what becomes, even if they believe it's just an animal, it still for them becomes this spiritual search, right? Like they've had a taste of the ineffable and they want to recreate that so badly that they give up their lives to pursue it and their sanity. And that's what can happen if you believe too much in, in the, the facade, right? And we see this even with alien abductees. There are a lot of people who have what I would take to be legit experiences, who then either want to recreate them uh, or they stop having them for a period of time. And so they start like photographing just lights, like which could be anything. It could be satellites. They could be streetlights at a distance, whatever. Photos of lights are completely unimpressive. But they take these photos and then they'll put them on like Facebook and be like, look, I saw this and, and have some story around it about how they saw it. It will be completely meaningless to anyone but them. But at this point, you know, with social media, you've already likely cultivated an audience of people who are always going to be positive with you and tell you how great you are and wow, how amazing. And it's all that that self-affirming crap, right? Like, this is what we do. We want to be validated. And that even goes for people who are legit having this experience when it, when it stops or is on pause because it's on its own timeline. And, you know, even if you spent your life trying to tell people, you know, humble brag about how you're not special. This isn't about you. Well, when it goes away, you know, <laughs> suddenly it really isn't about you. <laughs> and then that's when the psychological problems start. 
so we've got to be aware of all of this, right? Like all of these things are, are, uh, uh, just aspects of the phenomena to be aware of, um, because it can have a deteriorating effect on people. But again, I don't think that deteriorating effect is that the phenomenon itself is evil or anything like that. It's that it's how we react to it. And I mean, this is how weak we are. I don't remember what this was called either, but maybe you'd heard about the, um, the sort of, uh, what do you call it? I don't know. The artistic endeavor of, there was a woman in a museum in an art museum who would just sit and stare. And you were invited as a spectator to sit across from her for like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or something and just stare back at her. And so many people couldn't take that. They would go crazy. I mean, this is just a normal woman. Uh, a lot of guys got rapey. Um, a lot of people got uncomfortable, started yelling. We just, we project, this is what we do. I mean, to even just stare silently into the eyes of another human being can reveal the, the monstrous nature of us for some reason, right? And so now you're talking about not a human, but a mystery, um, you know, and the first thing that isn't clear is whether that mystery is your own mental illness, your own delusion, your own, you know, all of your own personal stuff. Once you get beyond, yeah, this isn't just my personal baggage. Something else is going on here. Well, it's still a mystery and we want to answer that mystery so badly, but we always end up answering it with our own fears and neuroses and, and, and our wish fulfillments. And what if we just stop doing that? What happens if we stop defining it? Does it react to not being ignored, but the facade of it being um, ignored or being called into question constantly? Like, would it reveal, <laughs> would, there, would there be some reaction on the other side? It's like, okay, now you're ready for the sit down chat. I don't know. Uh, but something to think about. Um, all right. I guess, uh, the people who were trying to join in had to go or were butt dialing me, <laughs> but, uh, I appreciate all of you listening. And, um, if you want to hear more about this topic, um, I, I guess I'm, I'll be glad to try to think up ways to talk about it. So somehow drop me a line. Uh, my email is Jeremy at our undoing.com. So if you want to email me, do that. Um, I mean, you tell me, what would you like to hear more of? Um, paranormally type stuff or spiritual type stuff, which again are all going to intersect. But um, I don't know. What do you find interesting? Let me know. Thanks for listening. And until next time, take care. In darkness, wisdomless mind, a rope appears to be a snake. Fear, agree or disagree. And why? Thanks. Um, thanks for the question. I don't know that this is an agree or disagree because wisdom comes from various places, from life experience, sometimes from education, sometimes when the flow of truth is you and flows through you and becomes truths as it breaks up in the time stream from one flow into a bunch of shards. Um, but I do think it is definitely true that to a wisdomless mind, uh, a snake can appear as a rope. So... In other words, a snake oil salesman, <laughs> I mean, literally, a con man, a, uh, a cult leader. These are things that can appear to be uh, ropes, to appear to be tools or to be saving you 
and um, they're not. They're taking advantage of you. 